0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
1: Measure C suffers a setback, so did City Council manipulate voters' will?
2: Our concern was about the power taken by City Council to ignore election law.
1: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. (music) Domestic violence involving guns is on the rise here. What's being done about it? Those of us who work in the field
3: of domestic violence anticipated an increase in both the number of domestic violence
1: cases that would occur as well as the severity around them. As some states ban abortions, new California legislation offers to provide them, plus the future of restaurants in a pandemic. That's ahead on Midday Edition. A San Diego Superior Court judge declared the San Diego City Council waited too long to declare Measure C's approval on Tuesday. The measure, which was on the March 2020 ballot, would raise the city's hotel room tax to fund an expansion of the San Diego Convention Center. Now the city is facing some legal setbacks on multiple issues. Joining me to talk about the measure is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome.
4: Hi, Jade. Thank you.
1: So Measure C has been a years-long effort. Can you tell us about the measure and the changes it would bring to San Diego?
4: Well, as you noted, Measure C would raise the city's hotel tax. San Diego has a comparatively low hotel tax rate when you compare it to other cities in Southern California and other major cities where, you know, they have big convention centers. And so raising it to the level of of comparable cities has long been seen as a relatively easy way to get more revenue for some of the city's really long-standing needs. It's also pretty attractive because it's mostly just paid by tourists not regular San Diegans who are actually voting on the issue so most of the revenue from this tax hike would go to the convention center expansion. The motivation behind that is if the city can attract more conventions, bigger conventions, then that means more visitors spending money in hotels and you know spending money in restaurants and shops and more tax revenue for the city, just growing the tourism economy. The second largest share of this money would then go to initiatives tackling homelessness. That could be affordable housing, homeless services, shelters, et cetera. And then the third largest share would go to road repair, and infrastructure needs.
1: The measure was on the March 2020 ballot and received a 65% approval from voters. Was that enough to pass the measure?
4: Yeah, well, that's the big question, and it just depends on who you ask. So, California's had this longstanding rule that taxes dedicated to a specific issue or, uh, you know, a funding priority require a two thirds majority from voters. But then in 2017, the California Supreme Court ruled that citizens' initiatives, you know, those ballot measures placed on the ballot by a signature gathering drive, don't have to follow the same rules as ballot measures that are proposed by governments. It was a fairly narrow ruling, but one that opened up this possibility that maybe tax increases that are proposed by citizens' initiatives don't need the two-thirds majority, and instead they could pass with just a 50% 1%. In the run up to the March 2020 election, there was still some ambiguity on this issue. Courts hadn't spoken with total clarity. But since then, uh, tax measures elsewhere in California have gone through, uh, you know, up through the appellate courts and have actually been validated with a simple majority vote, less than two thirds. So the timing of Measure C was really unfortunate for the proponents because it came at this time of, of legal uncertainty, and since then there have been more clarity, but now we find ourselves in, in uh, this you know, gray area where we don't really know what the rules were at the time of the election.
1: Right, and the measure has really bought on some legal battles over multiple issues. What are some of those issues the city is facing with this?
4: Well, one fundamental question is that question of the threshold. The ballot materials, you know, the sample ballot and the summary that voters got stated that Measure C needed a two-thirds majority. So there's a question of whether the city's relatively conservative interpretation of the law at that time mattered the most or, as the city is arguing, You know, what you say in a sample ballot and the measure summary is superseded by these other court decisions that said, no, in fact, a two thirds majority isn't necessary. It could just pass with a simple majority. There's another question that's central to this case uh, from this week, uh, and that is whether the city council waited too long to certify the election results. Generally, the city is supposed to declare whether a measure passed or failed within one month of the election. But what the city council did when they were certifying the election results is they said, yes, Measure C got about 65 percent of the vote. Courts have not spoken with clarity on on whether that's enough, and so we're just going to wait and see. And then it wasn't until about a year later, after some favorable court decisions, that the city council ultimately declared yes, Measure C had passed, and they were going to ask a judge to validate that decision. I spoke with Andrea Guerrero of Alliance San Diego, the nonprofit that uh, sued the city and is trying to you know overturn that decision by the council. Um, she basically said that. The city's trying to change the rules mid-game.
2: Our concern was about the power taken by city council to ignore election law and manipulate the election to get the results that they wanted.
4: And Jade, the judge essentially agreed and said that the council had no authority to wait for a year before deciding whether Measure C was actually approved or rejected.
1: Well, how has San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria responded to seeking Measure C's validation in court?
4: Gloria called this week's ruling an unfortunate delay. There's this question of waiting to certify the election results that has to be resolved before the city can then, after that, ask uh, for clarity on on this question of the threshold that it needed. So the decision this week likely added at least another year to this court case. Uh, it's definitely, almost certainly, going to go up to the Court of Appeal. Uh, it could go up to the Supreme Court. And Gloria's really a longtime supporter of the convention center expansion. He absolutely wants more money to deal with homelessness and infrastructure. And we're also hearing a political argument from him, not one that the city can really make in court, but to regular people. He's saying, how can this judge say that the city council overruled the will of the voters when, in fact, 65 percent of voters said yes to measure C? They wanted it to pass. Um, But, you know, again, that's that's a question that's hard to make in court because it's just a lot more complicated.
1: And what are the next steps in the battle with this measure?
4: Well, the city council has to vote on whether to appeal this decision. Measure C proponents, the people behind the ballot measure, can also step in and file an appeal. And they have 30 days to do that from when this ruling is finalized. So we're just going to see more hearings, more motions, more you know lawyers <laughs> arguing the case on both sides. Uh, just more waiting to see whether all of those things in Measure C will actually happen.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you.
4: Thank you, Jade.
5: There were several disturbing numbers in this week's report on crime in San Diego. In addition to an overall 13% increase over last year, a few crime statistics jumped significantly, including vehicle thefts and hate crimes. Among those big jumps was an increase in domestic violence crimes involving firearms. The report presented to the San Diego City Council this week found crimes involving domestic violence and guns increased 70 percent. This despite state laws aimed at taking guns away from abusers. Joining me is Jessica Yaffa, a former president of the San Diego Domestic Violence Council and president of the organization No Silence, No Violence. Jessica, welcome. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Is it surprising to you that guns seem to be involved more often in cases of domestic violence?
3: Certainly disturbing, uh, although not that surprising. Given what has happened in our community and, and really nationally over the last couple of years, those of us who work in the field of domestic violence anticipated an increase in both the number of domestic violence cases that would occur as well as the severity
5: around them. To that point, San Diego District Attorney Summer Steffen says domestic violence calls increased across the county during the pandemic. This week, Police Chief Nisleit blamed the overall increase in crime on COVID. Do we actually know, though, what role the pandemic has played in domestic violence?
3: Well, certainly no one can say for sure. But what we do know, statistically speaking, is that when pressure in our homes and in our communities increase, there is a direct correlation between that and there being a rise in the number of incidents and the severity of incidents. Domestic violence is all about power and control. And so when someone feels powerless or begins to feel an increase in the loss of control, it makes sense that those incidents then become more frequent and more severe. And so when we We think about the kinds of scenarios that are in existence because of the pandemic. We can't imagine that there wouldn't be a direct correlation.
5: Does domestic violence typically escalate? In other words, could it start with minor physical or verbal abuse and then escalate to gun violence?
3: I would say that most of the time, domestic violence increases over time. We would be silly to think that we fall in love with someone who initially presents as a monster or someone who's going to be incredibly physically aggressive and harmful. And so not only does it often increase slowly and methodically over time, but we also know that a lot of those early red flags and warning signs can be missed because
5: they are so subtle. And what are some of those red flag signs? Those red flags can
3: include anything from being controlling over what a person wears, who they're spending their time with, isolating from friends and family in the name of wanting to spend all of their time together and wanting to be priority, ensuring that they know where a person is at all times, which can also be disguised as wanting to ensure that they're safe and that they are protected. And so again, when we think about what some of these early signs can look like, we can mistake them for what actually feels Feels like very loving behavior and can feel very good for the recipient.
5: San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott has been praised for strict enforcement of state laws to take guns away from people who have a domestic violence restraining order against them. Those laws now have been in effect for a couple of years. Do you think they've been effective?
3: Absolutely. The city attorney's office is doing a beautiful job in really moving toward the pursuing of gun restraining orders, et cetera. And we know that we have some collective work to do when it comes to expanding to all cities in San Diego County, as well as recognizing that it's very hard to monitor because the expansiveness in which access to guns has existed historically is something that can be difficult for us to wrap both our head and arms around.
5: Well, then you'd ask yourself, though, why this 70% increase in domestic violence gun crimes? What we
3: do know is that those who are in a position of power and control, who are wanting to do harm, can be very creative in the ways in which they gain access to weapons. San Diego County continues to be very committed to mobilizing around the insurance that prohibited persons, like those who are barred from having weapons because of a domestic violence criminal case, that when we come together, we have the opportunity and the capacity to really make a collective difference.
5: Now, recently in Sacramento, a man killed himself, four other people, including his three daughters, during a supervised visit. He reportedly used a ghost gun. What role do ghost guns, those homemade guns with no serial number, play in an abuser's access to guns?
3: From what we know and what we can tell thus far, ghost guns aren't used all that often. However, we do believe that with more awareness and knowledge on on behalf of those who are doing harm and considered to be perpetrators of abuse, it's certainly something that we continue to be concerned about and are creating efforts around implementing ways of breaking through some of those challenges.
5: And what more do you think law enforcement and the courts can do to protect victims of domestic violence from specifically gun violence? Information is key.
3: We, as a community, whether that be law enforcement and first responders, as well as those who have a collective responsibility in the ways in which we're talking about and offering resources surrounding domestic violence, have the capacity to ensure that victims feel safe in coming forward. Whether that be recognizing that they have access to the resources that they need and that they're not stuck, we're able to work collectively to ensure that they understand the importance of a safety plan and are able to look at and take part in the ways in which they are able to prevent harm when it comes to weapons. Really important as a community that we offer information around the fact that there are ways in which survivors are able to maintain some level of control and empowerment, whether they continue to be in the relationship or are moving out of the relationship.
5: And I've been speaking with Jessica Yaffa, a former president of the San Diego Domestic Violence Council and president of the organization No Silence, No Violence. Jessica, thank you very much.
3: Thanks so much for shedding light on this important topic.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd, more at candlewoodartsfestival.org.
5: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. As other states continue to enact measures restricting the right to abortion, California is expanding reproductive options for women. Most recently, a bill was introduced to allow nurse practitioners to perform abortions in the first trimester without the supervision of a doctor. The legislation would clarify two previous laws allowing qualified nurses to perform unsupervised procedures. The nurse practitioner bill was introduced by State Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins of San Diego. She says expanding the role of nurse practitioners would provide greater access to abortions across the state, as California begins to see more women from other states coming here to seek abortions. Joining me is California Senate President Tony Atkins, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. It's always good to be with you. Now, nurse practitioners usually have to work under the supervision of a doctor, and aren't there good reasons for that? Well, I
6: um- In 2013, uh, you might recall, I did AB 154, which allowed uh, nurse practitioners, certified midwives, and um, physician's assistants to do abortions under supervision of a doctor. So that was almost a decade ago. And since then, AB 890, uh, Assemblymember Wood, uh, came forward with a bill that would uh, do postgraduate transition to practice for nurse practitioners. So this is sort of marrying those two bills to um, speed up the timeline by which practitioners would work without supervision. And what I would say is 13 other states uh, allow practitioners, nurse practitioners to do abortions, nine of those states without supervision. So we are not, uh, California is certainly not the cutting edge when it talks about um, transition to practice for nurse practitioners in many areas, including primary care, which is part of this. Now, as you
5: mentioned, this bill actually clarifies two previous bills, and I'm wondering why was it needed, and why do you believe it's needed now?
6: Well, I think it is needed uh, because we are, in California, one of the issues that came up through the Future of Abortion Council that did uh, an analysis of where we are as California. California is really ahead of the curve in terms of the right to privacy and the constitutional protection of the right to get an abortion. But where we lag, if anything, is allowing practitioners, experienced, trained, qualified nurse practitioners to really um, expand to the full scope of what they're able to do. So it is sort of marrying two pieces of legislation and helping it move uh, quicker forward so that we have more providers to provide more care Uh, in California. It was one of the workforce issues pointed out in the Future of Abortion Council uh, recommendations for what California could do to further uh, make it possible to help existing uh, Californians as well as those who might now come here because of what's happening in other states. Right. And do we know for sure that more women are coming to California from other states to obtain abortions? It is one of the key questions I asked a number of the providers, Planned Parenthood, and others that actually provide uh, abortion services, and we are already seeing an increase. So it's it's not uncommon from my days when I was a clinic director in San Diego and Los Angeles uh, back in the mid to late '80s, um, when abortion rights were curbed in other states and Mexico. I might add, uh, we saw more uh, we saw more women coming to our clinics for help. And we anticipate and have already seen that that's the case. And is California
5: ready and willing to take on the role as provider as other states roll back abortion rights?
6: Well, I think it becomes a practical nature of women will seek out the service and come here. I think the initial reason for um, a number of the providers, uh, medical groups, et cetera, to do an analysis of where we are is will we be able to provide that foundation of care for our own uh, Californians, but in additionally, women who will come here and seek services. And so it was a real assessment. And um, I think we're prepared to step up and be a beacon for uh, those who are in need. Um, and I'm glad that we can do that. Uh, and we want to make sure that we have the foundation and the structure to really accommodate. And I would just add, this is about providing extensive care um, to Californians who need access to health care. And not just abortion care, but access to primary health care. And we know that we need that throughout California, not just for abortion services.
5: If the U.S. Supreme Court, though, does overturn Roe v. Wade, as many think they will, what do you think California will experience as a result?
6: Well, again, I hope, uh, Maureen, that uh, we are there to provide uh, protection to women who should have the right to make self-determination Over their own bodies, and you know, it it just feels so odd. Uh, I've been, you know, I used to be a clinic director uh, thirty some years ago, and the fact that we are still uh, trying to make sure that women have access to quality and safe uh, legal abortion uh, is just astounding to me today. Are there are any plans for
5: funding people who come here specifically for uh, abortions and perhaps wouldn't have been able to make the trip
6: uh, except for that mm-hmm. funding? There is a piece of legislation that, that looks to provide that um, public-private partnership. Again, there's always been uh, a private philanthropic effort by those who really support uh, the right to get an abortion for those who can't afford it, Uh, I think this is taking it a step further and trying to determine how we can uh, advance that and help. California cannot have an open checkbook, but I do think you know that we have striven to um, increase access to health care for the residents who live here. And we're going to continue to do that, and we will see how that proceeds. But it would be more than likely a public-private partnership.
5: I've been speaking with Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Always a pleasure, Maureen. Thank you. And another bill has been introduced in the state legislature to ensure that reproductive health care, including abortions, are free of cost to patients in California. Assembly member Akilah Weber of San Diego proposes the establishment of a reproductive health equity program to cover the gaps in health coverage for women in California and for those who travel to California to obtain an abortion. The money would go to healthcare providers who offer reproductive services free of charge. Joining me is assembly member
7: Weber, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me.
5: Now, most insurance plans in California already cover abortion services, so who would be helped by this bill?
7: You are correct. Um, All state-licensed health plans in California are required to cover abortion services. However, there is a gap in coverage that exists for employees of religious employers and for employees of employer self-funded plans who may exclude these benefits. Additionally, currently, um, even for some state license plans, they may have an out-of-pocket or um, a co-payment that their employees must pay. Um, And so even though in California, you know, it is required, it does not cover all employers. And and for those those employees that do have it, they may at this particular time also have an out-of-pocket expense as well. How would the money
5: in the Reproductive Health Equity Program be distributed? Would it go to providers?
7: Providers would essentially, it would be a grant funding uh, to safety net providers who offer an abortion of contraceptive services. And so they would be able to apply for these funds um, based on the number of patients that they serve or they anticipate serving.
5: Would the grants coming from this program come exclusively from state funds or would private sources contribute to the program?
7: That is a great question, and that is one of the things I really, really like about this bill. So some of the funds would come from um, actually the employers that do not cover these services for their employees. They pay a dollar per month per employee that they have, but it also allows for private funding. So if people wanna donate to the fund, um, because they really believe in in the ability for a woman to choose and providing reproductive health services, they can actually donate to this fund as well. And so it's, a, it's actually a combination of both.
5: Have you introduced this Abortion and Reproductive Equity Act, largely because of what's happening to abortion rights in other states around the country?
7: You know, this um, bill came from one of actually two of the recommendations from the um, the California Future of Abortions Council, the FAB Council. Um, but as an OBGYN, someone who's been been practicing in this realm of re- women's reproductive health care um, for a long time, um, you know, I am very well aware of the need to increase access and increasing access makes, means that we have, you know, the ability for providers to um, go to places where they may or may not be dealing with people who are able to pay for themselves. So although this is a recommendation that came out of the FAB Council, I know from personal experience that this is something that, that California has needed for a while.
5: Now, are you concerned, though, that low income and women of color will be affected the most by other states' restrictive laws against abortion?
7: I am extremely concerned about that. Um, Before, So I am a native San Diegan. Before I um, moved back to San Diego, I was actually practicing in Dallas, Texas. And um, the number of minority um, women seeking care from me because of the restrictions that were being applied back then as far as different clinics closing in their areas, um, and so they were having to go outside of their area to seek care. I definitely saw it at that time having a disproportionate impact on on minority women and, and those of lower socioeconomic status. And so these laws and these restrictions and what may happen if Roe versus Wade is um, unfortunately overturned will definitely have a disproportionate impact on lower socioeconomic women and women of color. Um, Even just their ability to come to California for care uh, will be, you know, definitely reduced. And so that is one of the reasons why here in California and hopefully in other states that will continue to provide those services, we are having these hard discussions. We are planning for this so that we are able to provide these services to, to everyone who needs them. If
5: Roe v. Wade is overturned, I know that California is expecting an influx of women coming here to obtain abortions. Will that potentially overwhelm our reproductive
7: health services? That is an excellent question, and you are correct. The Guttmacher Institute has estimated that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that the clinics in California would have an increase in the number of patients that we see from about 46,000 a year to 1.4 million. And that is a 3,000% increase in the number of patients that our clinics would have. And so, and that's one of the reasons why we are looking for ways to expand access to care, looking for ways to expand uh, the number of providers that are here in California that can provide these services. Um, there are some bills that have been introduced. There is one kind of on the back of my head uh, and, and that my staff is working on if we need to, to see if we can also um, quickly give um, kind of like emergency license to physicians that provide um, abortion services throughout the country to get a kind of temporary license here in California to just specifically do that to increase the amount of providers that we would have here in California.
5: I've been speaking with Assemblymember Aquila Weber. Thank you so much.
7: Thank you.
1: They've been on the job as San Diego's full-time ambulance provider for three months. Now city officials say they are not pleased with Falk's performance. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman explains why from the City Council's Public Safety and Livable Neighborhoods Committee meeting.
8: San Diego Fire Rescue Chief Colin Stoll says his department will be pursuing financial penalties after an early review of Falk's 911 contract found the company was regularly understaffing ambulances.
0: I think it would be uh, inappropriate for me and premature to probably identify a dollar amount right now, but I can tell you that once this information is vetted through, that we will be uh, pursuing that avenue.
8: Falk took over operations in late November after promising just over a thousand staffing hours per day but city data shows they've only hit that mark eight times in the last three months. Falk has yet to meet their monthly minimum staffing hours, and the fire department says daily minimums are also often not met.
4: The issue here is
8: there were terms that we agreed to that are not being met. Councilmember Monica montgomery step says Falk got the contract in part because they were going to provide a higher level of service.
2: Falk uh, won uh, outright, um, but if that was... Based on promises that um, could never have been fulfilled, then we we have to go back to the table because that makes the process very unfair.
8: Councilmember Raul Campillo says Falk is not following through on what they promised.
0: I want to first and foremost ask uh, Falk why why we shouldn't see the statistics from the last three months as a really a bait and switch on the city of San Diego.
8: Falk's leadership says they have been addressing disparities and are working with the fire department in areas where the company has fallen down.
0: What we've seen
4: um, along with the fire department is is, an, is a significant improvement uh, in February.
8: Falk's managing director, Jeff Bain, maintains that the recent COVID-19 surge complicated staffing with up to 25% of the workforce out at one time. We are
4: working hard to continue our recruitment bring our employees on as quickly as we can.
8: The fire department says there have been times in areas where no ambulances have been available and they've had to rely on mutual aid while creating their own contingency plans. Bame says there may be no ambulances in certain areas because they operate a dynamic system that's meant to increase
4: response times. All the units start out in one place, but as the system begins to get busy, those units are moved, whether they're going on an assignment or not, they're moved around the city based on supply and demand. So even though a unit is staffed in a station uh, for FALC, it may end up out of that station throughout its shift and may never go back to that station often based on the, the volume.
8: The fire department, which runs the city's 911 system, also says that FALC has not been following their guidance. Jody Pierce is the deputy chief of EMS.
6: The city has provided uh, direction
1: to FALC in relation to operational, logistical, education, quality assurance
5: matters um, that all kind of revolve around not only contract requirements, but local and state
1: requirements, Um, and they have not followed that direction, which has caused um, issues
7: with our fire operation, county EMS. Um, We continue to work with them to try to address these issues, Um, but yes, it has been a challenge. So what I'm hearing is
0: Falk is not following the directions of San Diego Fire Rescue.
7: Yes, sir.
8: Some crews are pulling extra shifts, and city officials are worried about the potential for burnout.
0: My workforce has endured incredible adversity in call volumes, staffing levels, and difficult working conditions.
8: Anthony Sorcy is a FALC paramedic and president of the San Diego Association of Pre-Hospital Professionals. He represents hundreds of employees and says conditions have been getting better.
0: We are happy to report that the service levels and in-kind working conditions have improved for our members
8: before fines can be issued, Falk will have a chance to review the city's data. The company has the 911 contract for the next five years. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News.
0: KPBS on Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org.
5: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. At least 90,000 restaurants and bars across the country have closed since the beginning of the pandemic. That's according to the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And while the recent drop in COVID-19 infections are encouraging, new variants and future waves are not out of the question. The California Report's Keith Mitsuguchi says all that uncertainty has restaurant
9: owners on edge. The Newsom administration says it's still focused on getting people vaccinated and boosted and making sure hospitals are prepared in case there's another surge. But gone are the days of a full lockdown of businesses. That's welcome news for Evan Rich, chef and owner of Rich Table in San Francisco. In the restaurant industry, we're all accustomed to we do this for the love and business is secondary and we don't think about money and all that stuff. But in reality, we run a business and need to make sure, you know, people's livelihoods are dependent on us paying them and staying open. Rich says that if there's anything the pandemic has taught him over the last two years, it's that the restaurant industry has to be flexible. So while he's pleased that California is moving into this new phase, he's already making plans for how to respond if things get worse. Having the ability to kind of make choices on the fly to adjust your business is kind of what We've learned that Rich Table was one of many restaurants in California that decided to close at the height of the Omicron surge. And it meant thousands of dollars in lost revenue during one of the busiest times of the year. Add that to the massive amounts of debt bars and restaurants have accumulated during the pandemic. And many say they are now at risk of closure. A recent survey of independently owned bars and restaurants that applied for federal funding but were denied, about two in three, found 80% would be forced to close permanently if they don't get financial relief soon. Silicon Valley Congressman Ro Khanna says that's simply unacceptable.
0: Everyone knows one of their favorite restaurants which is closed. We can't
10: have that in this country. We need to provide uh, restaurants with help.
9: In late January, Khanna introduced his own legislation that would offer small businesses, like mom-and-pop restaurants, tax credits to offset a portion of state and local taxes. He hopes it can be part of a larger budget package that's being negotiated right now in Washington.
8: Small
0: businesses, small restaurants, these brick-and-mortar stores, these are my priority when we look at who deserves relief.
9: It's not just financial survival that has restaurant owners on edge. It's also the ever-changing rules put in place for how they can remain open and operate safely. Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Galley has said that while the state is lifting its masking requirement for indoor businesses, health officials could go back to enforcing it, if the virus surges once again. For Evan Rich, he's recommending, not requiring that his employees wear face coverings, but he understands that a lot will depend on a person's comfort level. We're all adults here, so I wanna make sure that everyone understands the risk, and as long as they feel comfortable with it, I am, and you know, I, I take my health into my own hands, and I you know respect the fact that they do as well. When it comes to financial relief, Rich says he's hoping he'll receive federal funding this time around. But if it doesn't happen, he'll have to find a way to move forward. And that could mean making some changes, like paring down his menu or adjusting what kinds of ingredients he's able to offer his customers. Congress's deadline to pass a budget for the fiscal year is March 11th.
5: That was the California Report's Keith Mitsuguchi.
1: San Diego Latino Film Festival has been forced to go virtual for two years because of the pandemic, but tonight it returns to an in-person festival at a new location in Mission Valley. The festival will host 200 movies from around the globe and from here in San Diego. KPBS arts reporter Beth Acomando has been to the 28 previous ones and speaks with festival founder and executive director Ethan Van Thillo about number 29.
2: Ethan, we are on the eve of the 29th San Diego Latino Film Festival, and we are sitting here in a brand new (laughs) space and location for you, so tell us about it.
10: Yeah, pretty exciting. We uh, we have a partnership with the Mission Valley Mall, Westfield Mission Valley Mall. They've been very supportive uh, to us these past few years during the pandemic. Uh, They, in fact, uh, gave us a storefront, a free storefront this past two years where we've been having our classes, educational classes for youth media and tech camps and our team producers project. And so it was a natural fit to also have the san diego latino film festival here and you know you can already see what it's taking place but we've taken over this old restaurant from the amc cinemas Uh, we have a stage outside so when people come to see the movies they're going to see a lot of activities we call it our festival village and there's gonna be live music we'll have a whole gallery space with art Uh, we're going to be doing our food festival again here so a lot going to be taking place during the 11 days of the festival
2: so the festival hasn't started yet but Sitting here in the old Ruby's Diner, I can see a lot of fun artwork and spaces for people to hang out. So this is nice coming out of the pandemic to have kind of a community space.
10: Yeah, you know, and and I think that's what we've missed really, you know, the past two years. Yes, we have did some wonderful virtual screenings and Q&As and it was fantastic. We did some uh, activations of the the drive-in theater and that was really fun. But there's nothing like getting people together and I think I think if you remember the festival in the past too we've always been a festival that celebrates the Latino culture in many different ways so we have the wonderful movies of course but then you also have Sonido Latino concerts we have over 30 acts that are going to be performing these 11 days we have a whole gallery of artists and vendors that'll be participating local artists and vendors with Arte Latino Um, and then we have our big food festival that's going to take place because we want people just to come to the movie theater sit outside in the mall hang out read the festival catalog listen to some music talk to some filmmakers and actors that are visiting take some photos on the red carpet and just have a good time especially you know in this time that kind of we hope it's post-pandemic right as we get together the importance of getting together as a community and talking to each other and dialoguing about the films and just being together i think we yes we've benefited all from the you know the virtual settings and you know our netflix accounts and all that kind of stuff but there's nothing like getting together and seeing the movies together and and more than just seeing the movies together it's it's about family it's about culture and community and you know so many people for the community here in San Diego, the festival has been a, a home for many people and they take their vacations and they'll you know, take a whole week off of work and, and participate here because they see family and friends and you know, relatives and they see people from their country. So you know, uh, we live close to Mexico here, but for those that are from Argentina or Chile from farther, I'm just hoping that you know, we'll see what happens. We don't know what people's reactions are gonna be, but I'm hoping that we get back to what, the way it was and people do start coming out and enjoying cinema and getting back together.
2: And in addition to showcasing films, you are having a tribute this year to Pepe Serna. So mm-hmm. what's that going to entail?
10: Yeah. So opening night is all about Pepe Serna, a uh, you know, legendary Chicano actor and just exciting. You know, He's participated in the film festival before, but this is a movie that we're premiering. You know, It was going to screen at the Palm Springs International Film Festival. That was just suddenly canceled. So imagine as a filmmaker and actor, you're going to premiere your film and then boom, it's, it doesn't happen.
1: My name is Pepe Serna. I am an actor painter, a writer, a director, producer, motivational speaker.
10: We're it's excited to be able to premiere this movie, to showcase his career, over hundred plus credits to his name. He's a wonderful character actor from you know, Scarface or American Me. People will recognize him when they see him. But to have him in person, to talk before the film, to do a Q&A. Again, that's what the Film Fest was all about. Uh, you can't get that you know, from your your TV or your, your Netflix account or something like that. So it, we're really excited to bring back that in-person component. You know, a lot of the actors and filmmakers are still kind of in their you know, uh, COVID bubbles. They can't leave their production. Uh, so we're not gonna have as many actors and filmmakers as in the past, but little by little they're coming out we're gonna get as many as we can. And Pepe Cern is one of those amazing people that will be here opening night.
2: And you also have a showcase of Frontera filmmakers because we are a border town. And what uh, can people expect from this this year?
10: Yeah, so every year uh, we like to showcase the the border region. It's what makes us special as a a film festival and and of course as a city and as a region. So it's called Frontera Filmmakers and throughout the years we've had workshops for the filmmakers and we always have a call to local filmmakers to participate in the festival. This year is something special took place. We have a guest curator, Adriana Trujillo, who's a filmmaker from Tijuana. Um, and she ran a movie theater in, in Tijuana for many years. Unfortunately, the pandemic shut that down. Unfortunately, but you know, wonderful artists uh, and, and individual from the border region who's curated the, the Fronteira filmmakers for us. And so we're going to see a collection of shorts, but then also feature films and documentaries as well. And I just want to mention, I think the team has done an incredible job, the curating team this year, is in expanding our network of films. And we've invited many people like Adriana Trujillo to be guest curators. So we have different programs and different programmers for the first time that we, we never had before. And so that, thus we have 200 plus movies, more movies than ever. You know, I told the team, let's, you know, let's show less films because it's a pandemic. We don't know who's going to come. But yet they programmed more of the films than ever. But that's because, again, the great work of the exhibition team and bringing more people, more voices and expanding our network. Because I think it's important, you know, I'm almost uh, 29 years I've done this. I founded the film festival. And, you know, more than ever, it's really important that more people get involved and and help curate the movie and, and bring their voice to this wonderful festival.
2: And you mentioned food, so on the closing weekend you're going to have your Sabor Food and Drink Festival. So what can uh, people get there?
10: Yeah, again, we could have kept it really simple and said, okay, we're just going to screen a few films. It's a pandemic, but no, we decided to do everything all out again. We just completely said, let's do it. So we have an opening night after party at the Patricio's restaurant. We have a centerpiece uh, party uh, downtown San Diego. And then on March 19th, Saturday, one to five, we have our sixth Sabor Latino Beer Food and Festival, which was postponed, you know, we couldn't do it the past two years. Uh, And that is a celebration of chefs, of distilleries, breweries, wineries, all things of Latino food. Uh, and beverages, and just we're going to have a live music as well. And more importantly, it's, well, it's about celebrating Latino culture and community, but then also uh, every, every time you buy a ticket to like Sabor Latino or any of the movie tickets, you're supporting our educational programs like our Team Producers Project that we do throughout the year.
2: And what do you have planned for closing night?
10: March 19th, Saturday, at the Bread and Salt in uh, Logan Heights. We are taking over that space, and it's going to be our award ceremony. But then we have this wonderful ten-piece band coming from LA, uh, Jungle Fire—they're called. It's expect two hours of uh, all dancing music. It's going to be great. So encourage people to come out and have a good time. And you know what a way to celebrate getting back in person.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much for talking about the 29th annual San Diego Latino Film Festival.
1: Thank you. That was Beth Acamando speaking with Ethan Van Theo. The 29th annual San Diego Latino Film Festival kicks off tonight at the AMC Mission Valley Theaters and runs through March 20th.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen and I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi.
1: or